You're listening to Career Up Now's Socially Distanced Close-Ups podcast. Today, Riley Kuffner is interviewing Ron Benzet. Ron is the Chief Executive Officer at World Housing Solutions. He's an experienced problem solver, connector, and mentor. Let's jump in on the conversation. Um, and so when you first started out, you know, in your career, did you envision that you would start a company like World Housing Solutions? Um, or how did that come about? No. Um, so I've been an entrepreneur since a very early age. My background is within, within the Jewish world is not that uncommon, but I was born in Israel and grew up in Africa and then Europe and then came to the U.S. where I went to school in Philly. And my parents had moved to Orlando at the time. I've always been involved with launching something. So at the age of 13 in France, I had launched a little business, which you don't do. It's not like in the U.S. where you go mow lawns or do other things that are just not done. But I was always going, oh, I could do this, or I could do that. So I've always been entrepreneurial since the beginning. Um, you were talking about you did, you know, doing a an entrepreneurial minor in, uh, at, at UCLA. I, I took entrepreneur, entrepreneurship classes in the early 80s in, in Philly when I went to school. I, went, I, I did Wharton undergrad. Everybody oh, cool. did finance. I did entrepreneurial classes. I'm like, That's cool. Just kind of this newer thing, but always fascinating. Um, and I've been involved with a variety of different businesses and, and different companies. World Housing Solution was born out of a, an intersection of necessities where uh, when the market crashed in, in 06, 07, 08, I was in real estate primarily at the time. I lost my shirt. Um, when the music stopped, there was no chair under, on, under my butt. So you kind of hit reset, not a fun thing to do, and uh, and look around. And I got involved with a company that made Penalization systems, but they were commoditized, not nothing special by what they were doing. So the company was really not profitable and not doing anything. Uh, actually, the company was dead, uh, but there was some interesting brain trust around the company. So I pulled them together to create um, what at the time we thought was something that would have a great need. Big mistake, um, which was kind of a, how do you deal with uh, refugees uh, during and after. Uh, a disaster, man-made or natural. Uh, the only challenge is that people that are refugees typically don't have any money. And the organizations that support them uh, don't spend a lot of money, believe it or not, in, in, uh, in many, many things. And the answer we got time and again was, um, look, those are interesting composite shelters that you've made that, yes, are better, yes, are stronger, yes, are safer, but a tent is good enough. Um, and so with, with that, we contemplated our demise or early on to the stage of, you know, early on with the company where it was not if you build it, they will come. And if we build it, no one came. And we were discovered by the U.S. Uh, government, uh, U.S. Navy actually in that matter, and said, hey, kind of an interesting uh, concept you guys have on small shelters. Can you make them bigger? Mm. Exactly. The answer is yes, we can. I'm an entrepreneur. The answer will almost invariably be yes. And uh, then we figure it out. And so we did. And uh, since uh, 2012 or so, we've been working with the U.S. military. Oh, cool. Okay. And so how big are these shelters you know, now at this point? Or how big were they before? And, and what changes did you make to them? 
So if you look at the needs, uh, the basic needs of, of someone after a disaster, um, as, as our, our understanding evolved, but it's primarily the first one is shelter. Uh, you're displaced, you're, you're in a dangerous environment. And typically the weakest members of our society, typically women and children, are at a great high risk within refugee environment. So our basic concept was a rigid shelter. So, so it's not soft, it's not a tent. It's a rigid shelter. It, hit, it is insulated so that it provides greater comfort within, within its environment. But with passive cooling, meaning you open the doors and the windows and air goes through. Cool. Uh, small solar panel for light and plugging um, telephones and things of nature that can be charged quickly. And last but not least, especially when we launched, it was right after the earthquake in Haiti. Haiti is a hilly environment, and there wasn't a lot of space where people could build their tents because there wasn't a lot of flat ground. So our shelter was designed with an adjustable leg system, so kind of like a lunar module sort of thing. So you can adjust one side versus the other, so the ground can be uneven, but the shelter is even. Uh, and last but not least, make it very simple to put together. We did. Yeah. Uh, the bonus was that the product that we used and developed, we did not mold mildew or rot or get eaten by termites. And depending on how it was assembled and tied down, we actually had hurricane resistance. We thought, that's it. We got it. So right. we went. Uh, our small 160-foot shelter never went anywhere. But again, when the Navy said, can you build a larger structure, we did. The first one for them was about 700 square feet. Uh, since then, we built entire military camps in certain environments, uh, including from the bathrooms to the dining halls to the gyms, the housing, the offices, to itty-bitty tiny little shelters for very specific uses and anything and everything in between, um, oh. including Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Special Operations Command, and a variety of other folks. That's cool. Okay. And that's been going on since uh, 2012 that you've been working with. Uh, Launched in 2011. Uh, we're, we're lucky enough to uh, be discovered by, by the military. Um, and it's still, a, it's still a roller coaster. It's not a smooth, linear path. Don't, don't, don't right. have, let anyone lie to you. It very, very rarely is. It's one of these from afar. It looks very linear. But the reality is it's, you're still doing this. Sure. Yeah, and I bet, you know, uh, even more so with the COVID situation, which everyone is facing, um, but I'm wondering if, you know, you and your company have done anything um, to react, you know, to the changing environments of this pandemic. Um, and, you know, if you pivot in any way in order to support some of the, you know, new needs that are popping up. So, yes and no. Uh, and, and, yeah. and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, yes, of course, you, people don't care about your solutions. They care about their problems. If you're not ready to solve their problems, nobody cares about your solutions. Um, so sitting here saying, hey, we, we can do this, and nobody cared, didn't matter. What we proposed was, and, and, and how we pivoted, was to utilize the lessons learned from responding to military requirements and integrating those into modular hospital capabilities. Oh, wow. And showcasing how you could set up very quickly hospitals in, in many locations in order to serve the, uh, those affected by COVID. Now, if you recall back in December of last year, uh, videos started going viral of the Chinese building a thousand 
room hospital in a modular path. It's a massive kind yep. of structure, yeah. About 10 or 12 days to build a thousand room hospitals. What they did, in this particular case, we think smartly, they used a methodology to keep the COVID patients outside of traditional medical environment. What we did, the US and others, was let COVID inside and stop everything else. So there was very little need for a hospital system to be built outside of the existing hospital. So again, our solution did not solve any problems, not in the US. Mm. It was kind of like, yeah, we don't need it. We'll do this this way. What we did notice was that they, the officials um, particularly looked at building inside of existing structures. So we pivoted and used our technology to say, okay, if this is what you're going to do, then here's a methodology using our technology where you can very quickly put together hospital beds within an existing ecosystem, clean it, disinfect it, flat pack it, and store it for the next event. Because we now know that it's not a function of if, it's a function of when we're going to get hit by this or similar again. So how do we react to those and how can we anticipate and be ready? Right now, the, what we discovered is the solutions that we currently have don't work. Because what we've seen is it's built out of plywood and other things. And now convention centers are tearing them apart, burning them in, in, in contaminated landfills because you can't just throw it away in any way you want. And then you can't reuse them. Our solution, you could. So it's, it's kind of an interesting process. Yeah, cool, cool. It sounds like a bit of a roller coaster again, you know, trying never, something never, never and pivoting. Yeah. Right. And so um, you talked about the, the Chinese working on the project back in December. Was that also when you were starting to, you know, think of these ideas? Were, were you kind of ahead of the game um, in terms of anticipating that we may have those same problems in the U.S. at that point? Um, or was that something that you kind of looked back on come February when, when the outbreak was first starting here? We reached out to medical uh, facilities here in Central Florida in particular and said, look, this thing is coming. If you want it or not, it's coming. What about setting up pre-triage environments outside of your hospital so that way you don't bring COVID inside and you say, if you have any of these symptoms, go over there and telemedicine it uh, or or treat with, with folks outside of that environment, and then you can make a decision. If this person has an issue, then you react to it. Unfortunately, we were way too early. Uh, we anticipated way too early because the reaction we got was, no, 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 we don't want to, uh, to ostracize our patients. We don't want to make them feel bad and say, we'll mm. come inside the hospital. So again, the government took the, the approach of, Actually, what's going to happen is stop every other medical procedure unless it's mended, unless you have to fall out for death and just focus on COVID. We came in with the, let's keep COVID outside. That didn't work. Yeah. Now that we see that there's a second wave uh, that is coming post Memorial Day weekend on some of the states, and we're seeing a spike in a bunch of different environments and areas. You know, I, I, hate, I hate to say maybe people are changing their mind, but I think it's going to happen where We've restarted our medical facilities and said you can start bringing patients back in again. You're not going to shut them down now, in my opinion, and do that. Plus, 
many small rural hospitals got hit extremely hard financially because mm -hmm. anything, any kind of money they were making was coming from traditional medicine. They were not as impacted by COVID as everybody thought they were. They may in the future, but they may not be around anymore to treat those patients. So again, lots of unintended consequences of decisions that were made good or bad uh, because nobody had, no one has ever done this before. Yeah. No, that, that's really interesting that you guys were looking ahead of this. And again, it's the kind of scenario where you know, I think it's a pretty smart idea to set up little pop-up uh, facilities outside and to screen it. Um, but it just wasn't the right timing, like you said. And so, you know, that, that matters a lot in entrepreneurship. Um, and so I'm wondering if there were, you know, any kind of resources or skills, maybe something that you learned at, at Wharton, kind of like you mentioned, going through an entrepreneurship education um, that helped you along the way in your different businesses. Um, and you know, anything that you can point back to and say, yeah, this is, um, you know, something or a virtue that was really important for me to learn um, and has kind of guided my journey. Fundamentally, and it, it's so corny and so obvious when you, when you talk about it, it goes back to people don't care about your solutions. They care about, your, about their problems. If it's a problem worth solving in some way, shape, or form, they'll find a solution to it. The question is, is ours or whatever business someone wants to launch in, is, is the new solution what is proposed better, faster, cheaper, stronger, whatever you want, more sustainable? Um, does, it, does, it, it, does it solve something else that is more important to, to the individual? Right? And, and so more, more pragmatically think about transportation, right? Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people invented a car. It was solving a transportation problem. Just didn't do it well, didn't catch on. Um, interestingly enough, the most popular cars in the late 1800s and the early 1900s were actually battery powered. More electric yeah. cars. Um, there were more electric cars on the road than gas powered cars. And then gas powered car, cars just took off because people started putting gas stations everywhere. Range increased and so electric cars went away and gas powered cars to so solving the problem and addressing and dealing with the infrastructure. What we kept on finding is when we're dealing particularly with the US military, is we kept on talking about our sustainability aspect. Because our units are so much more efficient that they use a lot less energy to air condition or heat for the US military. So we talk about sustainability. The reality is the military doesn't really care about sustainability, not in the sense that you and I and most people think about, they do but it's not going to move the needle, meaning they're not gonna buy my solution because it is green and sustainable. They have a problem to solve. If my solution solves that problem and happens to be green, it's a bonus. They're not gonna buy it because it's green. So we actually ended up changing our story, not what we were doing, but how we were telling it and saying, look, I'm not walking around saying we're green, we're kumbaya, we're holistic, they don't care. What we talked right. about was we solve a logistical problem for the US military. We take fuel trucks off the road, which saves lives and saves money. How do you do that, Ron? Great question, I'm glad you asked, Riley. We do that by delivering units that are operating at 300% more greater efficiency than a tent, and 150% more efficiency than a container. Are you interested? And now the conversation starts, right? So it's right. reframing the conversation and listening to the customer. 
Because for a few years, I'm walking around going, green, green, green. And like, <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares. But listening to the customer helped us define how our solution solves their problem. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And I found that with my business, too. Um, in talking to people, we've actually asked, like, you know, what are the most important factors that contribute to you liking our product? Um, and we thought that sustainability was going to be, you know, high up there. Um, it was still an important factor because we're talking about consumers who want to feel like they're doing their part. Uh, but it, was, it wasn't the main thing. You know, the, the main point was actually just having fresher food than they could get anywhere else. Um, and then the second was the, uh, the core aspect of having something that looked nice in their home. Um, and so I definitely think that um, while our mission, you know, our missions might be centered around sustainability, sometimes you kind of have to pitch it in a different way in order to get that adoption um, from folks. And so, yeah, no, I think it's a good lesson. Um, I'm also wondering if you had um, any mentorship along the way um, in your you know, different companies and that um, really, that really helped you and somebody that you looked up to as, as a role model. I live and breathe by the fact that along anyone's journey, if you cannot point to moments where you can, you can clearly see where someone either holds you up or pushed you out, then you're moral. Um, and, and, and I mean that in the sense that I've been around very, very successful people. And if they say to me, I've been able to get there because of me, myself, and I, it's all about me and I'm the one who's done it. The reality, it, it's, it's, it's not a solid, solitary journey. It is, it is a team effort, truly. So, of course, I'm surrounded by much smarter people than I um, that provide, of any age, right? Younger and older and same age. Uh, and, and the keys to listen, right? Going back to listening, on saying it, it's listen to people, but also ask the questions. Be willing to be vulnerable and say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, how do you do this? Or how would you solve that? I don't know. But you know what? Let me get back to you. Let me find out. Let me, let me talk to people who are smarter than I were or who have solved similar problems um, and, and find out. Or if it's a problem that's never been solved before, how would you solve it, right? How, how would the interview go when, when you're trying to put a team together to, to design a, a, a rocket to land on the moon? And, and if you go, well, what's your previous experience in traveling to the moon, right? <laughs> right. Nobody's ever done that before. So, sure. so what are the questions you ask of someone or a team and saying, what makes you qualify to help solve this problem that no one's ever solved before? So those are to me that, of course, you, you have to have mentors, you have to, to, to ask for help, and you have to recognize when it happens. World Housing Solution is in, is in existence today because, you know, a dozen times or, or more people very specifically believed in what we do and, and, and made a specific concerted effort that we can point to and go, if he or she had not done this or that, we wouldn't be here. Case in point, if the, if the U.S. Navy had not reached out to us and, and said, hey, this is interesting, but can you make it bigger, we wouldn't be in business, right? sure. very specifically. And I know that one individual's name who actually flew to Orlando at the time, and we were in a thousand square foot facility with a ragtag bunch of people in a, in a rinky dink little 160 square foot building. And he went, all right, make me something bigger. 
sir, yes, sir. Right? Yeah. And took a risk. Right. No, that, that's a cool story. And uh, no, I, I agree. I think it's important to build that whole network around. It's not about one mentor, it's about a whole network of mentors. Yeah. Um, and so are there any principles uh, for you yourself personally um, that kind of guide your life um, and have inspired you to you know, pursue one project to another? Um, maybe something that's particularly important to you? So we're called War on the Housing Solution, right? But yet all we do right now is primarily work with U.S. military and U.S. government. So we pivoted. We had to pivot. But when you pivot, you pivot either at 180 degrees, so you forget where you came from, it's behind you. Or you pivot at a 90 degrees, you can still see where, where you came from, but you're heading in, an, in another direction without really losing sight of where you came from. That's where we are. Um, we're grateful and, and energized and, and thrilled to be able to support our troops and, and work with virtually every branch of the US military from the Pentagon to others and develop solutions for them that are fairly unique overall. But at the same time, when someone knocks on our door and say, hey, we're trying to put together a, a transitional veteran uh, homeless camp, uh, could you help? We, we don't go, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, that's not what, no. Right. It's still part of our DNA. That is absolutely an, an integral part of our DNA because we want to do, we want to do good, but you can't do good unless you do well. Mm -hmm. So we're doing well, well enough by being able to serve the troops and then take those lessons learned and hopefully plow them back into having a, a, a dramatic and, and lasting impact within our community, both local, you know, and global. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, it comes down to helping people. But in order to do that, you need a business model. Um, and so you, yeah, you had to figure out where that really was. Correct. Um, and look, in the end, we still live by the three Ps of social entrepreneurship. We believe in the people, planet, profit approach. Mm -hmm. But you can do the first two if there's no third one. Otherwise, you're a nonprofit and you're asking for money each time. So can right. you be self-sustaining financially and being able to also do something that in the end has a positive ripple effect in your, in, in your universe? Again, hyper-local or hyper-global, irrespective, that's, that's where we want to be. That's great. And, and where did you, um, you know, first kind of find that uh, 3P, you know, model? Because I feel like it's a, it's a newer idea, but maybe it's been around for a while. Um, you know, is, where, yeah, where did you first come up with that? So, so the premise of social entrepreneurship in, in, in the sense that it's been uh, defined under the 3Ps, you're right, is about a 15, 20-year-old concept premise. Uh, and it's completely, it goes against the grain of what I learned at Wharton, right? It's, it's right. you know, what did you do today? And, and what is your stock worth tomorrow? And, and it's only on the short term. Um, the premise of people find a profit is, is changing that narrative and makes you think about things in, in a longer term that, that forces you to look at things and what is, what is truly valuable and, and how do you have an impact? So, so I've been following that again the last 10, 12 years. Uh, I was fortunate to be the, the first entrepreneur in residence at Rollins College here in Central Florida uh, sure. in the social business social entrepreneurship department. Actually, I think it was the first accredited business and social entrepreneurship uh, degree in, in the U.S. Um, so I was exposed and, and, and 
you know, I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago, Tikkun Olam, right? I mean, it's part of our sure. heritage, uh, and that's just an extension of, of what that is. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, well, cool, Ron. Yeah, no, I've, I've learned a lot from talking to you. And uh, just to have one last question about uh, the Career Up program. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about Career Up and um, also, you know, its structure for mentorship um, and, you know, how valuable that is for people. It take, look, it takes a village. You can't do it alone. And the ability to build a network of, of of experienced and willing individuals of, of all ages, right? Everybody's got an experience. You've just built, you're, you're in the process of launching, building your company. You've got an invaluable experience in a particular ecosystem that, that would be beneficial to others, including myself. So mentorship is a two-way street. If someone walks into a mentorship environment thinking, I'm just giving, there's no, there's no getting back. They're idiots. Um, mm. To me, it's, it's so valuable because I always walk away going, wow, this was cool. Or by the questions that was asked of me, that were asked, was forced me to think about some other things and, and also engage in conversation with, with, a, the, with a mentee. So, so a mentee mentor program is, is a two-way street. And anyone and everyone should really participate in this to the extent that they can. Yeah, no, I like that. Even as the mentor opening yourself up and allowing your, you to learn, um, you know, I think that's really important. Um, well, cool. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for taking the time to touch base. Um, you know, I was looking through a long list of potential, you know, people who signed up for this program. And I thought that, you know, what you're working on was um, just really cool um, in line with the same sorts of things that I'm passionate about, um, which is basically trying to figure out how to, give people the resources they need, energy, water, food, shelter for cheaper so they can survive um, and also be good for the environment at the same time.